this morning is have an overview of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, to the Ephesians. I don't know if any of you had a chance to have a read-through of Paul's letter. Just, just raise a hand if you've had a chance to look through Ephesians recently. Well done. Fantastic. So hopefully, um, for some of you that may be fresh in your minds, but don't worry, we'll be able to um, catch the rest of you up if you haven't had a chance to do that. And I mentioned that for the last two years I've been giving myself to the task of leadership of a Christian community, a church in the east end of London. And what I want us to think about together this morning is what, according to the Bible, is God's design, God's purpose for the church? What is God's design? What's God's purpose for your church community? Uh, I believe that you have a vision statement um, for your church. Uh, Tim was telling me, actually, it'd be very interesting. Just raise a hand if you uh, know your vision statement as a church. Okay, someone want to want to shout out to me your vision statement as a church? Okay, I think I heard that as to be the Christ-centered family for Parsons Green. Is that right? In Parsons Green, in Parsons Green. Okay. And I hope that what we can do is as we look at Paul's teaching in Ephesians about what the nature of the church is about, we can make some connections with what that looks like. Uh, for you guys and your vision statement to be the Christ-centred family in Parsons Green. Now, I know I live in the East End of London. It doesn't mean that I watch EastEnders regularly, but um, I'm sure some of you have seen EastEnders on the television. You know how EastEnders starts. You you get the theme music kicks in, and you get this uh, big shot, don't you, the overview of London. You know that sort of snaking picture of the, the, the River Thames and you know the credits, the opening titles to EastEnders? Can, are you with me? Do you, have you seen that on the television? Okay, the big shot, the overview, the grand view overlooking London, okay, as the, uh, as the opening uh, title sequence. And then, of course, we get into the nitty-gritty of action in Albert Square, life in EastEnders. So our sessions this morning are going to be a little bit like those two things. We're going to start with the, the overview, the bird's-eye view, the big picture, and then uh, sometime after coffee, we're going to get a little bit into, well, what, what does that look like on the ground? How does that play out in Albert Square, if I can put it that way? Now, I'm assuming just by way of background that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. There is some scholarly debate about that, but uh, I don't think we need to spend too much time worrying about that. And I'm convinced, as I think many uh, commentators are, that Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. And... Paul wrote his letter, it would seem, to Gentile Christians, possibly that particular community in Ephesus, but quite possibly as a circular letter to a number of the churches that he had established and founded and overseen in Asia. So, we're going to, um, you might want to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians and uh, chapter 1. We're going to attempt to have a little look at an overview, the first three chapters before we have uh, a pause for coffee. And I want to begin by asking you this question. What is God doing in his world? What is God doing in his world? Okay, now in fact I'm going to suggest that you just take a minute or two and just turn into twos or threes, just into little groups where you are, and just talk about that. What 
would your response be to that question? What is God doing in his world? Okay, just for two or three minutes, have a little discussion with your neighbour where you are about that. Okay, just half a minute more, half a minute more. Okay, well if you want to uh, draw back in together. Now it would be lovely to have a chance to go around and to hear the various ideas and thoughts that you are coming up with. I don't think time quite permits, but we may be able to revisit that later um, over the weekend. But let me suggest to you my understanding from the Bible of what God is doing in the world. God is primarily in the business of restoring everything that's got broken. God is in the business of restoring everything that has got broken. There are four great chapters, if you like, in the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible begins on, by the way, I think you'll have seen, there's a, there is a, a sort of a handout, some notes, if, if it's a help to you as we go through. So um, do have that to hand if you want. The story of the Bible begins, Genesis chapter 1, with God creating a good world and creating human beings as the pinnacle of that world. And the picture we have from the scriptures is of a garden, a lush, fertile garden where human beings are in perfect relationship with one another. They're in 
harmonious relationship with their environment, the ecosystem that they're in, and in perfect relationship with the God who has made them. God comes walking with his creatures in the cool of the day. But as you know, we only have to go two chapters into the story, Genesis chapter 3, before things begin to unravel. There's a rather curious creature in the garden, a, a talking serpent, and he comes along and encourages the man and the woman to break trust with God. Instead of trusting what God has said about how life in the garden should be, he says, actually, God's just out to spoil your fun. If you eat of the fruit that he said you shouldn't eat of, actually your eyes will be open. You will be like God. And the man and the woman decide to go for it. They break trust with God. They choose to trust themselves more than the God who's created them. And the relationships begin to break down and to fragment. Their relationship with God is broken. God now comes walking in the garden and the man and the woman hide from God. He's now perceived as a hostile audience, someone to be feared. The relationship between the man and the woman breaks down. They begin to blame each other. You know the old joke, the man blames the woman, the woman blames the serpent and the serpent doesn't have a leg to stand on. (laughs) Their relationship with their environment begins to break down. Thorns come up in the garden. And even their relationship within themselves begins to fragment. When God comes walking, they begin to to hide some things away from God. They feel emotions of shame and vulnerability and fear. And when they present a version of events to God, they're presenting themselves in the best possible light. They're presenting a certain version of events and in the meantime they're trying to hide away and cover over their own shame and embarrassment and fear and vulnerability. So breaking trust with God has led to a breakdown in all those relationships. But of course, uh, the story of the Bible, just a few chapters later in Genesis 12 and onwards, is the story of God not leaving his creation and his creatures in that place of brokenness, but God saying, what can I do to turn this around? What can I do to bring about healing and restoration to all that's got damaged? And that's a process that begins with God's call to Abraham. Uh, Abraham, the father of a people who will represent God's name and will be the people through whom God's plan to redeem things, to restore things, will come about. And of course that leads into becoming the people of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament. And the story of the Old Testament in many ways is something of a tragic love story. God's faithfulness towards his people and Israel sometimes being faithful to God but sometimes chasing off after other idols and ignoring God. And ultimately, there's something of a tragedy about the story Israel's failure to live up to her calling to be God's people in the world, to be the light to the nations that God is calling her to be so that his reconciling and healing work can come about in the world that he loves and wants to restore. And yet in the Old Testament, the prophets look ahead to a time when, well, the day of the Lord will come, that that time of restoration will come. So the question would be, well, how, how is that going to happen? And of course, we all know that out of Israel comes Jesus. Jesus, who increasingly senses that his vocation is to take upon himself the calling that Israel had. 
Have you noticed in the Gospel accounts how in the life of Jesus, Jesus replays a lot of the events from Israel's history. Israel passes through the Red Sea as part of their Exodus story. And Jesus passes through the Jordan in the waters of baptism. The Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they're unfaithful to God. Jesus is led into the wilderness and remains faithful to God when tempted for 40 days. The Gospel writers are saying, here in the person of Jesus, all that Israel was called to be is now being played out in the life of Jesus, Israel's Messiah. And of course what we believe is that in his life, in his death, in his giving of himself, wonderfully, to an extent mysteriously, Jesus overturned those corruptive forces of selfishness and evil that are rife in our world by his self-giving love, by taking the punishment that we rightly deserved for, for breaking trust with God upon himself. And the fact that God raised him from the dead three days later showed that the cross hadn't been the dismal failure that it probably looked like at the time if you were there and if you were one of his followers, but actually it was a great victory over those corrosive forces of, of what the Bible calls sin, selfishness, evil. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead, the Bible writers understand to be the beginning of a work of new creation that God is doing in his world. New creation. So if the first great chapter is the creation, the second chapter is it all going horribly wrong, the third chapter is God's work of new creation, of redemption, ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. There's a fourth chapter which is yet to come, and that is the time when human history comes to its fulfilment and the victory that Jesus achieved on the cross is made real in every area of our life and our world and of our cosmos in fact what is sometimes called the consummation everything to which human history is heading the time when finally as the Bible paints it in the final book of the Bible Revelation there will be no more pain no more suffering no more tears all evil all sin all selfishness will finally be dealt with and those tears will be wiped away And actually the Bible ends with a picture of a a, a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. Everything that the garden at the very beginning was intended to become will become that through what Jesus has done in the middle of the story. Uh, I I was interested a a few years ago to hear that J.K. Rowling, the uh, author of the Harry Potter series of novels, apparently has already written the final conclusion to the whole series and and the final ending of the Harry Potter series is is locked away in a safe and absolutely it's a complete secret as to what it is and and how it ends must never come out until, you know, it's time for the final book. Where are we at in the series, by the way? I've I've lost track. Five or six? It's out? It's coming in July. Okay, so we, for those of us who've been following it, clearly I haven't... (laughs) That's when the, uh, the, the final conclusion will be made known. And as I heard that, I thought, well, that is the opposite of what happens in the biblical story. In the biblical story, the end, the conclusion, comes bang into the centre of the story because we live now in the light of the conclusion we're heading towards. So we live as Christians now in this new age that God has ushered in through Jesus. 
We live on the basis of what Jesus has done in the past to bring that about. But we live that life of the future to which all things are headed in the power of the Spirit, who the Bible writers understand the Spirit is the one who comes from the future to empower us now to live the life here and now that we're heading towards. So we live as Christians in God's work of new creation, but recognising around us still the signs of the, the old order, the decay, the evil, the corruption, the suffering, the pain, the things that still go on in our lives and in our communities that we long uh, to be different. So, what would Paul say in his letter to the Ephesians about what God is doing in the world? Well, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10, he puts it like this. God's plan, which is to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, that's to say when that consummation comes, the final ushering in of the new heaven and the new earth, is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. What is God's big plan in the world? To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, let me, if I may then, before we break for coffee, flag up five key themes that Paul goes on to outline in his first three chapters to the church in Ephesus and in Asia that flow from that. And the first word is blessing. Blessing. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In fact, Paul is so excited in what he's writing that what we read as verses 3 through to 14 are actually just one sentence in the Greek. This is just an outpouring from Paul of praise. Praise God, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because in Jesus we are blessed. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. What Christ has done in his life, his death and resurrection is to bring in new creation into this old and decaying world. And if we are in Christ, one of Paul's favourite expressions, all the blessings of what Jesus has done become ours. Verses 3 to 14 are one blast of praise. And in fact, Paul uses uh, that phrase, in Christ, en Christo, eight times in verses, what we have as verses 3 to 14. Notice too that Paul understands this work that God is doing in our world as a work that involves all the persons of the Trinity. So verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. He's writing to Gentile believers... And he's saying, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. That's to say, if we've put our trust in God, if we've got to that place where we've responded to God's invitation through faith, we've trusted ourselves to him, then we are in Christ. We've trusted that word of truth. That is the gospel of your salvation. And he says, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now I know that you've been doing a, a series, a midweek series, looking at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And I just want you to note here that Paul is saying, God, the Father, has blessed us. 
He has blessed us in Christ and through the Holy Spirit who joins us to Christ. The whole of the Trinity is involved in this work. And Paul then moves from this blast of praise in verses 3 to 14 to one long prayer in verses 15 to 23. And again, notice that the whole of the Trinity is involved in his prayer. So verse 17. His prayer is that the Spirit would open our eyes to what God has done in Christ. So verse 17 of chapter 1. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. In other words, Paul is saying, this is what God has done in Christ and through the Spirit. Yes, he's triumphed. The old order of decay, God has done something about that in Christ. New creation has broken into our world and we can be part of it. And then his prayer is, I want you to get hold of it. I want you to see what your position is as you trust Christ. Every spiritual blessing is yours. Christ has triumphed, yes. And I want you to get hold of it as the Spirit brings wisdom and revelation of what that means. As a little illustration, there was a man called William Randolph Hearst who was a hugely successful uh, newspaper publisher. This is in the 1920s in the States. I believe, from memory, I think this is right, that he was uh, the, the subject of the film Citizen Kane, as I recall. Um, and he was a passionate collector of fine art. And he actually owned a, a, a castle, and he had his castle stuffed full of fine art and fine antiques. He'd also purchased several warehouses. He was a hugely successful uh, business person. And he had his warehouses stuffed full with fine art. And on one occasion, he was looking in a magazine and he saw a, a piece of art being uh, described, being advertised. He said, I must have this piece of art. I must have it. And he called in one of his associates and said, I want you to get hold of this piece of art for me. doesn't matter how long it takes you, what it costs. I must have this piece of art. His associate said, OK, I will, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do what I can. A few months later, the associate reports back to him. He says, I've got it. I found that piece of art. And William Randolph Hearst said, fantastic. Where did you find it? He said, actually, it was in one of your warehouses. <laughs> you already had it. And that's what Paul is saying here. I want you to get hold of what you have in Christ. In fact, the whole of Paul's teaching in the New Testament is sometimes described as be what you've become. There's a technical term, it's called the indicative imperative, is the, the, the grammar that he uses. This is what you are, now be what you've become. And I sometimes think that pastoral work is, in essence, helping the saints, the believers in Christ, to, to grow up into the crowns that are already over their heads. So Paul says, blessing. But secondly, he says this work of blessing doesn't go uncontested. It doesn't go uncontested. Those of you who read through the letter to the Ephesians, did you notice the language reading through it about spiritual powers and forces opposed to God's ways in the world? For example, chapter 1 and verse 21, Christ is now seated above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that can be invoked, not only in this age but in the one to come. 
Look on into chapter 2 and verse 2. It's talking about the ways in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Look at chapter 3 and verse 10. God's intent was the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And of course, looking over to Ephesians chapter 6, probably the most well-known part of the letter on this particular theme. The armour of God, the language of battle, of spiritual battle. And 6 verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, it's quite unusual for Paul to use this language. He uses it more in this letter to the Ephesians than any other of his letters. Why? Well, perhaps because Ephesus was a culture in which magical practices and occult practices flourished. In Acts chapter 19, we know that Ephesus was the location of the temple to the goddess of the underworld, Diana, or Artemis, who we read in Acts chapter 19 was worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world. Do you remember in Acts chapter 19, there's quite a few people doing some good business, creating little little silver statues of this uh, goddess, Diana, Artemis. We also have archaeological evidence from the time of of, Ephesus from this location in Ephesus. For example, tablets that record stories such as a gladiator who wore an amulet that he believed had magical powers and who won six straight bouts as a gladiator. Then the amulet got broken and lost and uh, he suffered three straight defeats. That was the kind of culture that the Christian church in Ephesus is living amongst. And in a world where you feel at the disposal of cosmic forces, magic and occult practices are an attempt often to find some measure of control. And we see it's rampant in our culture at the current time, especially as our understanding of the world in a a rational, modern, in the philosophical sense of that word, kind of way is breaking down. Rampant in its turning to Magical practices. Look at the interest, for example, in horoscopes. Attempts to find some certainty about the future, some way of controlling our existence, so we don't feel at the the mercy of forces that we can't control. And our own sense of anxiety or insignificance. And I haven't got time to go into the way that I would want to prove this to be true, but I want you to take it from me that Paul understands these powers and principalities, these authorities that he writes about here, to be real, personal, spiritual beings opposed to God's ways, God's loving ways in the world. Perhaps it takes us back to that second chapter of the story, Genesis chapter 3, the talking serpent in the garden, who is wanting to lead the man and the woman, away from trust in God. So Paul sees behind the alienations and the divisions in the society and in uh, human relationships, real spiritual powers seeking to energise and maximise those fault lines in our society of division and alienation. The fractures seen on the earthly stage and They operate on a number of levels, economic, racial, political, ethnic. And Paul, bear in mind, is particularly writing to a community where division between Jew and Gentile 
in the culture is very, very deeply ingrained. He sees real spiritual powers and forces seeking to energise these fractures and these fault lines in our societies and in our lives. Thirdly, and then we'll pause for coffee, position. What is our position in Christ, then, according to Paul? Well, as I've already said, Paul says that Christ has triumphed over these powers. He says that at the end of chapter 1. Christ has been raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. I don't know anything about judo, but I believe there is a move in judo where when your opponent comes at you, you can actually choose to be overpowered by their momentum, but precisely so as you roll back, you can in turn overpower them and find yourself above your opponent who you've allowed to turn you. And in some ways, it's as though Christ on the cross has allowed the powers of evil and darkness apparently to overpower him, but realising that like some kind of judo role, his own self-giving love is actually the very thing that will prove to be the triumph over their uh, sinful and destructive ways. So the cross actually is a great victory, as Paul pronounces. And what he says is this, well, what is our position? Christ has triumphed over these powers. And then in chapter 2 and verse 6, he says, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's not just that Christ has triumphed over these corrosive powers, but that in Christ we are seated where he is. Above every rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that can be invoked. So there's going to be something that emerges from this text about how do we walk out the authority that we have as believers in Christ. It's one of the reasons I think that in the Bible, do you know the most common command that we read in the Bible, the most frequent command in the Bible? Do not fear. Do not fear is the most regular command that we get through the scriptures. 366 times it comes in the Bible. As I sometimes say, it's one for every day of the year, including leap year. (laughs) Do not fear. Why? Because my life is in Christ and he has triumphed over the powers and the principalities and that's where my identity is in him. So if you're feeling fearful about the future, anxious, if you're feeling insignificant at the disposal of wider forces in the world, Paul's message is, do not fear, because in Christ every spiritual blessing is ours, and we're raised and seated above the powers that would seek to exacerbate selfishness and alienation and disunity and fractures in our lives and in our society and in our world. And because there is a sure hope of future to which we're heading. 
Now, I'm conscious of time. Uh, we've got two more words we might have a look at after coffee, but it's um, just coming up to five past now. So should we pause there? Let's have a break for coffee, and if we can come back. Uh, Tim, is it um, half an hour? And we'll pick up from there. And uh, just to say, you, I'm sure you've noticed that um, in the sort of coffee area, there's a little display. Uh, it's headed, what will St. Dee's look like in, in 2010? It's the fruit of the labours of the PCC on the uh, morning they had, about a month ago now, um, where we tried to imagine what this uh, God-centred, Christ-centred community will look like in three years' time. And see if you agree, if you've got some other things that you'd like to add, um, and that can maybe percolate in our conversations over coffee, lunch, and so on. So thanks very much. We're back here promptly 11.30. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.